welcome to Of Dust and Divinity, an ongoing conversation with makers, thinkers, and doers, where we ask big questions of the small things. What do you do with moments where trust is broken or where people are not showing up as their best selves and you get like the underbelly of people in relationship and society? What, what would you propose we do with that? Welcome back to the second part of our conversation where we pick up right where we left off and jump straight in. Enjoy the episode. So I was driving down the road a couple weeks ago in my big old farm truck with my farm trailer and there was an ambulance behind me. And so I heard the sirens and saw the lights. So I pulled over on the side of the road, which in its own little inconvenience, because I was in the middle of town, you know, caused its own stress and blood pressure to rise in, in my big rig. But I got over and the person who was behind me did not see the ambulance behind them. So they just kept puttering down the road and, you know, I honked at them and kept pointing behind them and finally they saw it as they were passing me. So they pulled off the road just in front of me and then the ambulance goes by and then they got on the road and kept driving. And immediately I felt this little thing in my heart and said, hey, I was on the road in front of you. And it dawned on me in that moment that that is the nascent seed of power fragility that sense that something was taken away from me when nothing at all was taken away from me. I had to pull over for the ambulance anyway. I was gonna get home at the exact same time anyway. There was literally nothing about that car being in front of me that actually took anything away from me. And yet I felt that something had been taken away from me. And on the rest of the drive home, I was thinking about, and I was like, oh my gosh, if you take that feeling across 300 years of decisions where people can actually write laws based on feeling that way, you end up with systemic racism and white supremacy, right? When there's one group of people who all get to say, I don't like this particular feeling that I'm experiencing in this particular area, and they write one law, then two laws, and three, then a thousand, then 5,000 laws, all based on that unacknowledged internal feeling, That's what creates the system of white supremacy. But it's a human feeling that we all experience. The difference for white men is that we've had 400 years of writing laws based on that emotion. That's created the system. (laughs) Yeah, much longer. (laughs) Okay, yeah, fine. Yeah, no, absolutely. (laughs) Much longer than that. Yeah, definitely right. Um, and, and so then when, when you begin to, so this is actually something that we've been saying over and over to our eight-year-old son, Judah. We've been just, we've been starting to say this to him. When he throws a fit about something, we say, Judah, nothing has been taken away from you. And we start from that place because as a white male himself, I want him to grow up in a world where he is not power fragile, right? Like I love the term white fragility, but it's really too small of a term. It's a shortcut term that is really trying to talk about power fragility and it just substitutes power for white because it's a way of saying it's a shortcut to say white people are in power but power fragility is when we feel like something's taken away from us and nothing is right so there's white fragility there's male fragility there's christian fragility there's landowner fragility there's second amendment fragility there's all these kinds of power fragility structures that are out there 
but it happens when we think something's taken away that's not. So Katie, I, I think there's so much truth in your question. Like how can you even have a conversation at the table when the, the deck is so stacked against you? And I, I totally about, and, but to, yeah, it, it comes down to power, right? It comes down to power. Yeah. And who's supposed to set the narrative? Like who are you supposed to even join that conversation or just have something entirely new? And so Sherry, and because you said in your bio and then you said it later on, go into white patriarchy. What is that for you in your workspace? How are you coming to be aware of all the different dynamics of that in your particular industry? And and how are you feeling about that right now? Yeah. Um, Katie said, it's definitely pervasive to the American structure, you know, down to the bones. And my job where I have I, you know, do the legal analysis and then have a fiduciary duty to my company um, is very much a, to support um, the creation of, and um, of wealth. And, you know, you can talk for a long time about different form economic forms, but, um, and I'm not here to argue economics forms, but I am <laughs> here to point out um, what I see to your point and, perhaps the deficiencies of what we currently have. And so definitely there's the, the bias that anyone who's not white and then not straight white male um, faces. And there's plenty of other people with the data out there. And that's true for people working at my industry. So in terms of who's in charge, you definitely, it's heavily stacked in favor of straight white males. Um, so that's in terms of the, the visual and actual human beings I interact with, there's that um, in terms of the, the laws and the things that I'm interpreting um, and um, planning with my company. It's this idea that it's all about the money, honey. And that idea that money and the creation of wealth is the end all be all. And it's really interesting um, in corporate America, because on the one hand, we've created these corporations, this, this idea of a corporation. Um, initially, it was created to allow for um, a lot of people who didn't have enough capital to create their own company to come together together and put their money essentially in trust, which is why I have a fiduciary duty to shareholders. So they put it in trust of the um, the board and the executives of a company to run the company. Um, in order to um, do whatever the goal of the company is. And that isn't necessarily a bad thing when it's kind of abstract like that, right? But um, as Katie was saying, it definitely grew up. That definitely comes from the Anglo tradition of um, the U.S. law where property rights are king. I mean, back in the day and still today to a certain extent, you know, people in England... <laughs> couple hundred years ago could literally be killed for stealing, hung for stealing a loaf of bread. So that's like property was much more important than human life. Um, and you could see that strain still um, through our legal system. Um, and there is an idea within corporate law of shareholder primacy is that the idea of that corporations should maximize the return, um, the return on investment for the shareholder. So the idea is to increase the value of the shares held by the shareholders 
And again, not a bad idea in the abstract world where you say, hey, that's cool. That means uh, just little on me with five bucks can maybe make 10 bucks by just putting my money over here instead of putting it underneath my bed. Um, it sounds great in theory, but um, what you get when it's in this world where there is white patriarchy, patriarchy is, as I said, the people in positions of power making the most money in the company I'm at are almost all white males. And then um, we are concentrating wealth in our country. Um, we are encouraging the concentration of wealth in our country in our tax code. Um, and and that obviously helps people who have power <laughs> because they own that property. I, I think on a smaller scale, well, first of all, I 100% agree. I think so much of the American system and before that, the Anglo system is really built on this idea that property is kind of the primary thing that has primacy, um, which you learn from like your first year of law school and they put you in this property class and they say like, this is like one of the key fundamental things you must learn is these principles of what property is and how, you know, how it works, how it transfers, who gets it. I saw that play out before I transitioned to this job. I uh, was a legal aid lawyer, which meant that I represented low-income folks who needed legal representation in civil cases, but you know couldn't afford an attorney. And so I did a big number of things, but one of the main things that I did was tenant representation. And right there, I mean, you, you see it play out every day that it, landlords hold all the cards because what it ultimately comes down to is the primacy of this contract and by extension your your obligation to pay rent and so it does it doesn't matter if you are like a elderly woman who recently lost her husband and has cancer and is unable to pay the rent this month because you know your social security something's going wrong with your social security like that does not matter if you have not paid the rent, right? Like you go into court and the purpose of the court is to follow the principles of the law. And the principles of the law are, if you didn't pay your rent, you are SOL, like you are out of that house. And not paying your rent is a trump card for landlords because of exactly what you're saying, that this is a country that we have built on the idea that property rights matter. And when you take that back 300, 400 years and look at who was given property, and then when you take that back even 40, 50 years ago, at who's excluded from property, um, you, of course you're going to end up with an unjust system, with a, with a system that perpetuates poverty for those who are already poor, with a system that perpetuates disenfranchisement for, for Black people, for Latinx people, for immigrants, for people of color. 40... 50 years ago, it was still legal to discriminate against Black people in giving loans. Right? And, and like, so of course, you are going to have lower rates of home ownership. And so then you're going to have, and so then you're going to have people who are subject to all of these like um, systems that are unequal from the start. And you are forced into that position of being kind of on the bottom of that ladder from the get go. Um, and I think it does, you know, Sherry, you said, like, I'm not here to debate different economic systems, and I will totally respect that. <laughs> but I think you, you know, you have to look at the relationship to money also. I think mm -hmm. that's a huge part of 
when you talk about injustice in America and all these things, you have to talk about money because it, it's mm -hmm. so built into it. And I will say the current conversation, uh, there's so many shortcuts for people who don't want to listen, right? And one of them is, I've heard a few times, um, any whiff of something that may be, quote, quote, too far left, um, the specter of communism is raised. And mm -hmm. honestly, I just think that's a red herring. So people don't have to talk oh, it's about it. such a red herring. And there's such a carryover, yeah. right, from the, from the Cold War psychology. Yeah. And I... Uh, to what <laughs> Katie and I have said before, I do just think the system is set up to concentrate power um, and concentrate wealth. And I think those go hand in hand. So I don't think it's unintentional. Um, those things, I don't think it's conspiracy level intentional. I just mean the system itself. Um, and this idea that especially white Americans have that we can be the exception, as you were saying, you know, we might understand that the system benefits those with power and we might be, you know, renters, you know, but we believe that we're going to be the homeowner someday. Mm. So we support the system mm. because, because if we were like, Oh no, you know, we see ourselves already as the owners, even though we're not. And I think it's something that's, it's, it's something, of course, we want to believe that we have control over our own lives. And I think that psychological fear stems from that, but also to um, <laughs> conscious and unconscious bias, you know, not recognizing yeah. for white people, not recognizing that the system itself is harmful. Um, and that the reason there is certain concentrations is because there has been this taking advantage of other people mm -hmm. and that, that level there. Yeah. And Katie, I appreciate you drawing the strong line between property ownership and human, the value of human life. And, and really it's an inverse line. And, you know, I, so, so the land that I'm sitting on is unceded Concow territory. And yet from everything I can gather reading historically, if you had sat down and pointed at a geopolitical map, you know, a county map showing my parcel, and you had said to, you know, the Concow tribe, do you own this? They would have said no. And, and in many indigenous cultures, there's not this idea of possessing the earth. There's not this idea of like, I can own the land. And, and then you trace it way back into Anglo history. And one of the ways that the Brits conquered the Scots was with this idea of enclosure, that it used to be public lands where people would raise their crops and their sheep and no one owned it. It was just the public lands. And then the king and the courts began enclosure. And, and that's really what started the fiefdom structures is they said, well, we're going to enclose this land. This land is now private. This land is now owned by the Duke. And so if you want your sheep on that land, you now have to be a serf for the, the elite. And, and then, and then you can just trace that all the way forward in this Western mind of possessiveness. And then of course we get into our relationships and we get into the racial negativity, the sexism, the domestic abuse that all stems from this idea of like, I own a thing, which we don't own. The only thing we can own in this entire world is our own selves. 
And yet that is the thing that us white men are the worst at doing. To know my own self, to own my own soul and my own behavior, my own shortcomings, my own failures, to be accountable is like the absolute, like if white people, if white men are known for one thing, they're known for not being able to own their shit, right? And yet that's the only thing that we can actually own as people. And instead white men own everything else in the world so that way they don't have to deal with themselves. They don't have to own their own soul in the presence of another person. You said it, Kevin. <laughs> and Katie, I just want to speak to something you said earlier about um, whether or not there's, uh, um, you know, a, a seat worth having at the table if the cards are stacked. And I will just say, the optimism that I'm feeling, it really is intended for other white people. I think we shouldn't, we white people can't just give up, right? Like we've caused these problems and not us individually in terms of setting up the system thousands of years ago, but we've perpetuated and continue to. And I personally get frustrated when I hear other white people just say, oh no, there's nothing for America next. It's that civil war. And I look at them like, you're crazy. Like there's, there are other options. Like if we hold the power, we have options. And it, it's disappointing to me when I hear that rhetoric um, from them. But I, I, I totally hear your perspective. And um, us white people, ironic, because I'm actually speaking right now, but we just need to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I should clarify on that remark, too. I'm not saying we should all leave the table or shut up and all stop talking because frankly, I don't think we have that choice anymore. I think there are just too many of us and we all have to find a way to live together or I mean, kill each other off. Like there is no other option mm-hmm. at this point. It's mm-hmm. we all live together or we all die together at this point. Um, and so I'm not saying that we shouldn't have conversation. I mean, I think like I'm here, right? And, um, you know, I've been in a lot of rooms where it's like me and like a lot of white people and we're talking about things that deal with black people and I'm not a black person. And it's like, we're having these conversations and there are people who aren't even at this table but are metaphorically like at this table. And I think we need to have these conversations as messy at it as they can be. Where I have more pessimism, I think, is in the idea that that those conversations are going to, that they're ultimately going to change anything. Mm. And, mm. and so part of, you know, which is one thing, and that's a whole thing in and of itself about like, what is the value of conversation if not, if not accompanied by like action and change? But there's a whole other thing, which is, okay, I've got to sit at this table. I've got like white folks who I love and respect, and I got to sit at the table with them. And it can feel like this trap that none of us wanted, where there's a, there's like this weird dynamic in conversation where if you don't get a reference that most white people would get, they look at you like, oh, there's something lacking. Whereas if I make a reference, to something Korean American, 
right? Or something Asian American more generally, there's a sense of, well, you have to explain this to me. Mm-hmm. And, and this is a small example, yeah. but it just goes to this point that like, again, even white people who I think love me very dearly have that kind of implicit attuned sense that there is an ought and a cool new thing that you're going to explain to me. And that is an inherently uneven way to sit at a table. Mm. And it's, mm-hmm. again, I'm, I just want to be very clear. I'm not saying we shouldn't. And I'm not saying that I dislike those conversations or that I don't want to be in those relationships. I think my point is while we are having these conversations, there's a lot of unevenness and a lot of imbalance. And I don't know if you can even that out, I think is what I'm saying. And it doesn't mean you walk away from the table, but but you maybe just have to sit there and recognize like, hey, this is not like it's not and maybe never is going to be a, like even handed situation. So, Katie, what, what do we what do we do with that? Because in my darkest moments, I have the same thoughts of like, I'm not sure that there's ever been a country or society that's been a genuine example of the American myth of a melting pot, right? There's always ethnic dominance in all of history. And then countries war against each other to claim out their stake of land for their own dominance. So like, like is the answer that we just have, you know, these four states are the black states and these four states are the Mexican American states. Like that doesn't seem great. Yeah, I don't want to leave my husband. Right. That. Like that doesn't like and yet we're also uh, asking ourselves to do something that history has repeatedly failed at over and over. I just right. want to point out, Cabin, you're doing what you're not supposed to do. You're putting the emotional burden of solving this <laughs> on someone. I love it. Isn't white. Thank you. Thank you <laughs> for holding it. me accountable to that. Thank you. So Katie, you don't have to answer. I'm just wondering if you have thoughts about it, but please don't feel like you have to take any emotional weight in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I raised the issue, so I, you know, it's a fair game. I'm <laughs> I'm going to fall back on like I'm an Enneagram 8. My job in this circle is to point out the problems and then like bring me a 1 or like a 2 or someone else to come fix it. <laughs> um but, but to try, maybe, to answer your question, uh, my first kind of gut instinct is maybe we don't do anything about it. Like, maybe what we do about it is we say, this is a thing that exists, and we're going to recognize it, and we're going to sit in relationship anyway. I have increasingly become convinced that good things only come out of deep relationships. And so, you know, I could sit here and come up with the most perfect, well-thought-out formula for how to be anti-racist, for how to undo all the white supremacy in the world. But if it, I am coming to believe that if that's not based in real, caring relationship, it's, it's still going to fail. Um, which is not to say like run out and find the nearest person of color you can and be like, be my friend so that we can save the world. Like that's oh, not gosh. the answer either. But I think if you can sit at a table together, like when those opportunities organically arise, 
if you can sit at a table together and listen to each other and say, I understand that this is not an even table and I'm going to quash my burning desire to fix it and I'm just going to sit here and listen, I think the answers will present themselves organically. And I think it is also a kind of a chicken and an egg thing, right? Where in some ways you have to start being an activist in order to become, to be in relationship with people on the other side of the table. And it's only when you are at the table that you can really have meaningful activism. And so you have to just kind of like messily find your way into that circle somewhere at one point in there. But all this to say, like, I really, truly believe that it is only out of deep, radical love that we are going to get anywhere towards doing anything. And one of the integral parts of love is just admitting that the reality is this way and sitting in that together in like empathy and messiness and care and challenge and discomfort, but, but not pushing for an answer before, before the relationship presents the answer. I, I will say like that this for me comes a lot out of Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed, if you've read that. And he says a lot of things, a lot of really good things in a very short book, but he really hammers down um, on this idea of radical love. And one of the things he points out that like, if you do not love and learn and sit in truth and empathize, like radical love is being an umbrella for all of those things, right? For learning, for loving yourself, for like really loving and being in relationship with others. If you do not do that, coming out of oppression is always just going to be defined as taking on the role of the oppressor. And so he takes, he talks about this cycle. And I think that's so true in America where, I mean, I can certainly see it like in parts of my family and parts of the Asian American community where it's like, well, we came from this very harsh background or poor country or whatever. And it is our obligation or opportunity now to go and get what all the like rich white people have. Mm. And it's like, that's not the goal, mm. right? Because that is inherently built on a system of oppression. Mm. The goal should not be let's become the oppressors. But until and unless we learn radical love for ourselves, nothing is going to, like, we are always going to think that that is the goal. Mm. That that is where we will find enough because we don't feel like we have it now. And similarly, like on this relational level, I think um, if we don't learn it for each other, we are just going to keep jostling for that position at the top of this like pyramid built on human lives. Right? And so, I, you know, I think what you're saying and I'm saying dovetail in this area of really knowing yourself and loving yourself and like, that's hard. Yeah, <laughs> it's like hard. really not easy. Much less like loving each other, loving other people and like sitting in the messiness of like loving other people in an uneven world and in a power constrained society. Like, ugh. <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious to hear from you, Katie, how this kind of dovetails into your spiritual understanding of the world. And I might just preface it by th this question for me arises within myself 
and it's what leads me to ask you the question. One of the things that I find most attractive about Jesus and have for a number of years, but really recently have kind of this, it's not new cultural language, but it's new cultural language to me has come around this idea of decentering, right? One of the things that is so attractive to me about Jesus is that the way of Jesus is always decentering to ourselves because the way of Jesus says there's exactly one person who holds any power in this whole system. And that's Jesus. And he holds all the power of life and death and goodness and everything in between. And the invitation into the kingdom of Jesus is always an invitation to unseat our power, to decenter ourselves, and to center it all on Jesus, which is one of my greatest kind of bafflements with the institution of the church is that it's so occupied with its own power. It's like, whoa, you guys have really missed the boat on who this Jesus guy is. But this idea that Jesus in his kingdom always centers himself as the power and all other participants in his kingdom have zero power, like none. I think that's one of the reasons why the Beatitudes talk so much about the weak and the poor and why Jesus so often praises those without wealth or property or home because there is something about being in a seat of powerlessness where Jesus says, okay, now there's space for my kingdom here because you finally figured out the one thing you needed to know, which is that it's not about you. And I, and that's often used in Christian cliches in a really negative way, but I mean that in like that soulful wholeness of of decentering our world from our own values and desires and centering them on him. And to, so to me, like I, I come back to this conversation about social constructs and mental frameworks and other things that have led to systems of white supremacy and racism and misogyny and sexism. And I'm like, man, if, if we could really figure out this Jesus dude, like that could actually be a gateway into this world that you're describing, Katie. Yeah. I, my old, like evangelical self and maybe also my Christian parents would like hit me over the head for getting this order backwards. But like, in addition to Paulo Freire, I would say Jesus, right. Is, is also, this incredible example of redistributing power based in love. And I think, you know, a past version of me would have pointed to the cross as this, like Jesus has the ultimate power and gave up power ultimately in this most like ultimate expression of power, chosen powerlessness. And I think right now where I am is like, don't know what to do with the cross. Don't know how much I actually think it matters anymore. Um, and again, I'm going to get so much flack from <laughs> people, I'm sure, about saying that. You're but not but get any flack I here. Say... You're, this is good. <laughs> welcome. But it, you know, it's not because I think the cross doesn't matter. It's because to me, the cross is like a coda in this life that is this like incredible, brilliant example of redistributing power based out of love 
like you read these words that are like a secondhand recounting by these dudes, you know, 2000 years ago. And you can feel even through all of those filters, how much Jesus loved people. And in particular, the people who did not have power, um, both in society and, and in particular situations. And everything he does and says comes out of that. And so, and so to me, um, you know, I think this conversation about justice and inequality and power ultimately comes down to love both for yourself and for other people in your relational sphere. And I think there is no better example that I have found of what that kind of selfless love looks like than the life of Jesus. There are many times when I've been like, eh, I'm kind of over the church and Bible and praying and all these things and all the weird cultural things that come with like being a Christian in America. Like I'd rather just not. And I find myself kind of coming back again and again to this person who just loved in this way that I find myself needing and that the people I come into contact with in my day-to-day -day work that I see them needing. Sherry, you talk about how you're obsessed with our failure to take advantage of our own humanity to become better. Can you take us on a little bit of a journey of your experience with that? It goes back to what I was saying earlier about shockingly finding myself to be the optimist in the room. I, we have this ability to reason. We have our an ability. To, we're conscious of our mortality. We're conscious of our pain, other people's pain, our joy, other people's joy. Um, we're able to see these things and be wise and kind and loving. And that's a choice we make. And it's just, we consistently don't make that choice as humans. And it's puzzling because in the long run, we're happier when we make the choice to be generous or other things. But there is something, there's something that we choose over those things and that something seems to be the easy way out, right? Like the lazy or fearful way um, of protecting ourselves because we think that we must cause this pain in order for us to be okay. There's that. There's also places where we are stuck in complacency in systems that are abusive. And that's really hard. I, I'm not trying to oversimplify, um, like you could, take the planet, for example, and global warming. And, I, and it's hard, especially during COVID right now, when we're doing a lot of takeout food and such, it's, I don't want, you know, to contribute to problems with plastic and all these petroleum based things. But it, you know, there's systems in place that and I'm trying to survive in it. So I'm not trying to oversimplify. Um, but it's fascinating to me that we as a species have this chance to be cognizant of our own evolution and we have that opportunity and we consistently are like nah i think i'd rather eat this donut than save <laughs> ourselves you know give ourselves a better future i thought you were gonna be the optimist <laughs> you're bringing it around <laughs> okay fair sorry if you want 
the next step then is like, I actually do believe we can. And I'm not someone who <laughs> believes that that's all we have to choose. And um, I just read Parable of the Sower by um, Octavia Butler and, and the protagonist creates her own religion. And if I were that protagonist creating my religion right now, I'd, I'd be creating a religion of, yeah, we can, we can evolve and we will evolve. You know, that would be what I would put out there as the beacon. Um, so that's the optimism, Katie. <laughs> <laughs> Say, I mean, what would that look like? Like, what would your doctrine be in that religion? I'm very, I'm very curious. Mm. Yeah, and I will caveat because you know, attorney. Um, I don't, <laughs> I don't like religion. I don't like institutionalization just because I think people then. But maybe I don't like it because I feel like people revert to their fearfulness within that shell. So mm. maybe I could set that aside. Um, the doctrine. Huh, that's a good question. Um, I will have to think about that. But it would be something to do that with this. Um, what am, my first date with my current husband, I asked him what the shape of the soul was, right? So um, <laughs> if I'm thinking about the shape of my soul in this conversation, I would say that my doctrine would be looking in on our soul is this beautiful little crystal and having that crystal share its light that it receives. So this idea of being our best selves um, and choosing to trust other people's best selves and choosing to trust our best selves. Um, so bringing that trust that we were talking about that the law is in certain ways a, a system of trust bringing that up um to an even better level um so i need to really think about that katie because that was long-winded and way too abstract to be helpful no um, that's, but that's a great question that's no i love it i mean i i'm more of a trial attorney so this completely makes sense <laughs> for both of us um but you know i'm i'm specifically curious about like in that kind of a schema, what do you do with moments where trust is broken or where people are not showing up as their best selves mm -hmm. and you get like the underbelly of people in relationship and society? Like what, mm -hmm. what would you propose we do with that? Man, you asked the hard questions. Um, when I start this religion, you're coming with me. Okay. Um, <laughs> at least with my advisor. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, my initial response would be grief, which, um, so my initial response would be we need the time and the space to grieve. But I, I guess that's assuming a lot, right? It's assuming I could take victims away from the perpetrators, and it's assuming that um, those breakings of trust somehow don't happen um, in environments where that's you know not possible. I'm also assuming that the perpetrator can be somehow, somehow won't continue to do that when that space is created. Um, so there's a lot of assumptions there. But the, also I do, as part of my thinking with this idea that we can evolve is that evolution um, means that there are some commonalities that I think we would become better than what we are now right like take our best self now and say that would just be the baseline and we could go further from that um so i would think that certain things we would take certain things as fundamental to who we are um because they're fundamental to the survival of our species if that makes sense and that's that's why i use the word evolution um, mm. yeah. yeah like there are things written into our dna or like our cultural DNA even. And yeah. yeah, how do we move forward from that? Wouldn't the American mythology say that the Bill of Rights was kind of one of those 
moments of taking all of human progress to that point and saying, okay, here's the baseline we're going to build from? Arguably, yeah. So darn it, I'm just a product of the, <laughs> the same system. Um, yeah, no, I think that's a good call out, Kate. And I think at least the the optimistic white narrative would say that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the Bill of Rights is kind of the culmination of this enlightenment thing that we did. And enlightenment itself is this, like, very white-centric thing that happened. Mm-hmm. And yet, I will say there's some... I, I cannot deny that there is a value in sitting down and saying, hey, there is a dignity to the human soul and the human person. Mm-hmm. You know, putting out all the other kind of weird things aside, that moment of declaration and recognition is not... In, an exclusively bad thing. Yeah, it was just a bad thing because they didn't realize how much more evolving they had to do as people, right? Which 200 and (laughs) odd years of evolution, we can look back and be like, well, when you said all people, that obviously didn't include all people. Um, So whatever Sherry's religion or nation looks like in 200 and 50 years, um, we'll have the benefit of hindsight of, of looking back and saying, well, when you said this, it didn't actually include all of it. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to come back to like my thing, which is in this moment becoming my soapbox, which is like, I think you could have a bill of rights that said, well, just white people, just white men, just straight white men. I think you could do that because those people were not in relationship with the people that they were excluding you know again which is this funny circle of well you're excluding Mm -hmm. them so you can't be in a relationship with them so you're going to keep excluding them but i think if they had been right like if if (laughs) if thomas jefferson had freed sally hemmings and then given you know changed the world so she was on perfectly equal footing with him i mean what then would the declaration of independence have looked like right? Like if you were in real hard, difficult, but genuinely loving relationship with other people, what would these big moments of inequality look like? Yeah, unfortunately, there's also Abigail Adams, and she and John Adams loved each other, and he didn't do much for her, but I I hear you as a, yeah, I think I love that. I love that truth in what you're saying. And yeah, I, I don't think relationship is enough, right? Like, I don't think we just sit together and have a, you know, a weird kumbaya moment and that's it. I think it has to be the both. It has to be, I'm willing to think, I'm willing to change, I'm doing all the activisty things, and I'm basing that out of love. And that's our show. Thank you so much for joining this ongoing conversation as we seek to unearth meaning in the everyday stuff of life. For show notes or to connect with this community of seekers, visit us online at www.ofdustanddivinity.com. Join our Facebook group, which is called Of Dust and Divinity Podcast Community, and engage us on Instagram at Of Dust and Divinity, all one word. Hey, and if this conversation was meaningful to you like it was meaningful to me, leave a rating and a review on your favorite streaming platform so that more people just like us can discover this podcast and join the conversation themselves. And don't forget to subscribe. Here is a sneak peek of 
the next episode. Enjoy. I think that's why I love creativity is because to me there's kind of two angles to it. There's this side that is the big picture and it's it's what most people would stereotype as creativity. It's ambiguous, it's hard to define, it's maybe like intuition or inspiration, whatever you want to call it. But then there's also this practical side to it and where that's where we can actually use it and figure out ways to harness it better. And so the solution is so weird. You know, there's not like A plus B equals C. But at the same time, it's still solving something. It's the opposite of being stagnant or autopilot to me. It's very proactive. It's very aware, present, forward focused. A huge thank you to my wife for supporting this passion project. And a great big thank you to Michelle Lim of the Everly Collective for all the brand content, including the name of this podcast and the cover art. As you go through your day, remember these words of Rainer Maria Rilke. Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. Do not seek the answers which cannot be given to you, for you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now.